Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, good morning. If you're new to the church, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors at our church, and uh, the web team has always had a special place in my heart when we were starting the church, and I was bivocational for four years. I, I made a good portion of my living in corporate web development. And so it was really challenging in the early years for me to keep my hands out of the pot and not over-meddle with what the web folks are doing. And now I have no choice. They've so passed me by, I can't even make a contribution anymore. So uh, it's really been a great thing to watch our web team grow. Um, so many people are connecting this way now. And I just I hope that you would really support this team. I think it's going to be one of the most important ways that we reach our world in the generation ahead. So I want to just um, welcome you to Harvest again this morning, and if you're joining us for the first time, we're working our way through a series on the parables of Jesus, stories Jesus told in order to illustrate for us with clarity what his kingdom, what being a Christian really is about at the core. And this morning, we're going to look at a couple of parables that Jesus packaged together as a pair, and they can best be described by the simple title, The Cost of Discipleship. There were two parables about what it would cost to begin the journey of following Jesus. <clears throat> the text is Luke 14, verses 25 to 33. Here's what it says. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish or what king going out to encounter another king in war will sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's the word of God, and it's a... Uh, <clears throat> It's a heavy word of God. This is not um, the kind of text you read when your aim is to draw large crowds of onlookers. This is actually, for those outside of the faith, a very unwelcoming and unfriendly kind of scripture passage. But we need to unpack a little bit what Jesus' real intent was in giving this to us. And so we're going to look at that this morning. I want to start with a question for you, though. How many of you guys are fans of home improvement television shows? Right? Anybody? You guys have either DIY or HGTV is almost always on your TV set. I am a big fan of anything that has to do with restoration and renewal and redemption. I don't like throwing stuff away and just getting new stuff. I love watching old junk made new. And there's something about that that really appeals to me. So mo most of the television I watch now is along that vein. There are like three or four shows I follow. All of them center on this theme of restoring and renewing and redeeming old gross things. 
Here's the thing, though. One of the annoyances I have with this, these programs is they make everything look so easy. You know, this crew comes in, they poke around, they go, you know, this is a mess. We're going to fix it. Get out of here for like 24 to 36 hours. And you come back and the place is miraculously transformed. And I've always had this sinking suspicion that this is good television. They're not showing us everything. You know what I'm talking about? Like, what they don't show you when the family's out of the house is that there's a small army of professionals busy like, like elves overnight, just working through the wee hours. And by the time they come back, it's this team of professionals that has created this amazing transformation. But the way they make it appear on television is that two or three guys, like a really good-looking carpenter with big muscles and a really hot-looking interior designer and some host, put this whole thing together by themselves. You know, they do the fast forward and they show a room being cleared. Even just clearing a room of all the junk in it, isn't that one of the most annoying parts of painting? And they speed up the films, and they make it look so easy. And then people watch these shows, and they get inspired and think, you know what, this weekend we're going to transform our living room in 24 hours. Yeah, right. So you begin by mimicking what they do. You just clear everything out. And then you start taking a sledgehammer and knocking down those walls to create more open floor plan and all this. And that's why I love this one show called Renovation Nightmares. <clears throat> it's maybe the most real reality TV there is. They send a camera crew in and they watch and videotape regular people doing their own remodeling projects. They interview them, they record them, but they give them zero assistance. And it makes for some really, like a real reality wake-up call regarding home improvement. And it makes for some real dark comedy because they say stuff like this. The guy says probably, yeah, you know, I'm going to knock down that wall with a sledgehammer tool. We're going to demo the whole thing. And then they flash a graphic on the screen. Uh, we wouldn't do that if we were you. It's load-bearing. Or the guy goes, you know what? I'm just going to yank that right out of the wall. And they put on, he's going to get a shock of his life. And... It never fails. The pros watch this, and they want so badly to intervene, but they don't. And what they show us is when you're inspired by illusion and you walk into a thing not knowing exactly what it's going to cost you, you're in for some rude awakenings. And these people do get shocked. And here's what you see a lot. You don't see smiles. You see a lot of, um, we made a terrible mistake. And they're in the ruins of what used to be their kitchen, and there's wires hanging out and debris everywhere. And they realize once they opened up the wall... There's all this junk in the wall, and TV was just an empty, you know, frame two by four. But when they open up their wall, there's all these weird cables and other things running through them. What do I do with all this? They find mold, dry rot. And the whole point of it is, when you set off on a journey without understanding exactly what's involved, over the course of carrying out that journey, you're going to have some very discouraging setbacks, a lot of reality checks, and you're going to realize most journeys in life are nowhere as easy as they appear at first. I mean, don't you agree that most, you can turn off that slide there, most long journeys, I think, begin with great enthusiasm. Think about how you feel before a long road trip, cross-country road trip, or the, the start of a new job. Awesome, I just got hired. And you're so excited a week from now, two weeks from now, see how excited you feel. How about marriage? You, you see those wide-eyed um, Bride and groom standing at the altar, and they look so excited. It's going to be awesome. It's just going to be like dating, only better. Catch up to them in like six months. Ask them, so, how awesome is it? Like, it's not as awesome as we thought it was going to be. 
Um, it's great. Don't get me wrong. It's not negative, but it's just not easy. And I think when we want something, when there's enthusiasm and momentum at the start of a long journey, we downplay all the challenges because we want to get started. We see only the glowing highlight reel that's going to play later. And it's only after you get started you, you realize, oh, actually, it's not going to be a downhill coast. We're going to have to climb up a lot of hills to get through this thing. See, the co- if, if this text seems familiar to you, that's because I actually preached from this text in January of this year. The message you can hear this morning is going to be rather different than the It's not going to say something wholly other, but we're going to approach it from a different angle. And if there's any message I think that bears repeating is this one, that following Jesus will always surprise you by how different it is from what you thought it was going to be. Let me say that again. Following Jesus will always surprise you by being very different than what you thought it was going to be. I think the journey of Christian discipleship is a journey of being consistently surprised, even shocked, by the depth, the breadth, the extent to which God wants to take over our lives and remake them. We want to slide into Christianity as a value-added accessory to an otherwise awesome life, and we realize that God is actually redeeming us starting from the ground up, tearing everything apart, and making everything new. And that's always a shocking thing to realize, but it's a dawning, gradual awakening that we have. So Jesus tells us two stories, because the consistent posture of Jesus' ministry was always this. It was a posture of invitation. He's always saying to people, come to me. I want you to join me. Please follow me. That was always the way Jesus talked to people. Come on. But what he was saying is, don't just come follow me on your own terms or based on some misunderstanding of what I'm inviting you to. Jesus always invited people to follow, but he always gave them clear instruction. If you decide to follow me, I want you to know, no surprises, this is what you're going to get into. I, I remember in high school, I had a friend who said, hey, Dave, do you want to come over and you know, I have all this great food? And then... Um, we're going to play some basketball at the park at like 10 o'clock. But, so come in casual like sweatshirt and stuff. And I went and we played about 40 minutes of basketball and I realized why I was really there. He's like, oh yeah, after we're done here, um, can you help me move? I was like, you are not a good person. What I realized <laughs> was that what I thought it was going to be was not at all what it turned out to be. And I think this is one of the things Jesus is saying is there's no bait and switch with him. He's telling you right from the start, it's going to be hard, but it's going to be great. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be great. So he tells us two stories about counting the cost. Because he does want us to follow him, but he also wants us to finish. And people who don't count the cost don't finish. Here's, a, here's a, 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 I think, a trustworthy idea. Dreams are of great value, but dreamers never go very far unless they have at least one foot firmly planted in reality. I think this is why my marriage works. Between me and Jeannie, put us together, we make a whole person. (laughs) I am a stupid dreamer, and she is firmly, not just one foot, but both feet and both hands and her head rooted in reality. There's no imagination, no dreaming, just uh, reality. And she keeps us grounded. 
And if I didn't have her, I would spend most of my life dreaming about what could be and none of it would ever be. Dreams are important, but dreamers rarely go far without at least one foot firmly planted in reality. That's what these stories are about. Over the history of the church, these stories have been analyzed, picked apart, dissected, and allegorized. We're not going to do any of that. They are such simple, clear, plain stories. We're going to spend the the most minuscule amount of time interpreting them. And then I want to talk briefly about the implications of what these stories mean. In the first story, Jesus tells a story about a guy who's building a tower. And he says, listen, if you set out on a construction project, doesn't it make sense to first count the cost of the project. And you know, it's an axiom in any construction or building project. Take whatever you think it's going to cost and double the amount of time and double the budget you have because that's how these things go. Once you break ground, these guys find all kinds of things like, well, you know, we quoted this when we thought the ground was soft, but it's much harder than we thought, so double the price. And that's the way it goes. Building projects always cost more, so if you're going to be wise, if you want to finish it, You've got to pause at the beginning and consider how much it's going to cost. Because if you don't do that at the start and you get excited and you break ground, whatever you manage to build will stand as a reminder to you and everyone else that you're terrible at math. That you started something that never got finished. Who knows who these people are? Anybody? Prize if you know who these people are. Don't you want to watch any TV or news or anything? All right. That's David and Jackie Siegel. They're, they're billionaires. If you own a timeshare anywhere, chances are you've made them fabulously wealthy. They run, um, I think, what, what is that, Westgate or something? It's a timeshare company. And they've made billions off of this. And their unique uh, claim to fame is they set out to build the largest private home in the United States. It's this place. At a cost of $100 million and 90,000 square feet, uh, this house has, let me give you some stats here. Um, it's called Versailles, by the way. That's a very humble name. Uh, it boasts 13 bedrooms. The master suite is 6,000 square feet, a four-story foyer that can swallow a four-story house, 23 bathrooms, 10 kitchens. And the woman doesn't even cook. She's got 10 kitchens. 20-car garage, an indoor roller rink, a baseball diamond, and a two-story movie theater with a balcony video arcade. That's just a few of the amenities that they have there. Problem was that after they broke ground and got this far, the economy changed, and everyone was like, timeshare, whatever, we're going to buy food. And they stopped giving these guys money, and they ran out of money. And so after they got 90,000 square feet of concrete framing up, They couldn't finish, and everybody just loved to hate these people because they were so arrogant, they were so um, over-the-top wasteful of everything, and yet there there was this house, this gargantuan house in Windermere, Florida, half-finished and standing there as a monument of failure. As a public reminder to everybody, by the way, if you don't know what that red is, that's just for, for kids in children's ministry, Every parent has a code, and if you look at your sticker and your kid's in red class, and that's the number, go at once. Your child is causing trouble. All right. Um, this unfinished structure is like a monument to failure. 
And, and everybody who sees it, it, this kind of thing invites mockery. It says, why did you start a thing which you didn't realize you could finish? Jesus understands that one of the greatest disappointments in life, one of the easiest things to mock, is something that begins boldly and ambitiously and never gets finished. Here's another uh, story that Jesus tells. He tells a story of two kings going out to war, one going out against the other. We don't know who's the aggressor, who's the one being invaded. But in the ancient world, kings made their fortunes and their reputations. They secured their rule based on warfare. And how a king did in war was everything. There were devastating consequences for going to war and losing. Now, granted, very few kings actually fought themselves. They would send people. But here's where the, the role of the king came in. The king's role was you don't pick fights you can't win. If you start a fight and you lose, it's on you. And a lot of people will lose their lives, but you will also lose your throne and you will lose your whole kingdom. And so this is a very relevant story for Jesus' day. And he says, look, if you're going to go to war, wouldn't it make sense to pause in the headquarters tent for just a little bit and go, can we win this fight seriously? Now, <clears throat> this is good for a person like me because when I was younger and I was playing sports, I truly believed in my heart I could beat everyone at every sport. I know that intellectually, that's just not true. I, I would take on guys who are 6'4 in one-on-one basketball, and I would get crushed, but in my mind, I'd go, I'm still going to play because I believe I could win. That's just stupid. If I had just paused and thought about, all right, what are you working with? What's realistic? I would probably have still played, but I would have trash-talked a lot less um, and endured a lot less scorn, humiliation, that kind of thing. He says, wouldn't it make sense that before you go to war, you figure out, can my 10,000 beat his 20,000? Now, don't, don't take that too far. History has proven war is not always a numbers game. I mean, that's why that picture's up there. 300 guys, like, repelled a massive force for a very long time. That's from the movie 300, okay? Catch up, all right. War is not always a numbers game. But here's the thing, only a fool starts a fight that he knows he cannot win. And so you really sit there and pause and say, is this a wise course of action? And it's not just about looking at your own troops and going, I believe in my guys, they are fierce warriors. It's also about taking a sober assessment of the strength of the opposition. Do I really understand how strong the one coming against me is? I know how strong I feel, but how strong is the opposing force? And here's the bottom line of these two stories. What Jesus is saying to them and to us, because at this point of his ministry, he's on his last pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You know that? He's, he's done his earthly ministry. He's at the very last chapter of his life. He's making a trek to Jerusalem, at the end of which he will be tried, convicted, and crucified for our sins. And along the way, he picks up this massive crowd of followers who believe that something's happening and they want to tag along. So he's got these thousands and thousands of people in his entourage following him as he makes his way to Jerusalem. And I'm sure his love pours out for all those people, but he knows that most of them are only hanging on by a thread. And he gives them these stories to say to them, 
You need to know if you're going to keep following me, that it's not just about sitting on hillsides listening to me talk. And can I just give that to you as a challenge and an invitation? If Christianity mainly for you is coming to this building and listening to me talk once a week, it's not enough. Then you, like the crowds, will be hanging on by a thread. And what he's saying to them is if that's what it amounts to for you is consuming and listening and following and watching at a distance, you will never finish this journey. Because to follow me will involve opposition and great cost. And he says to them, and I believe he says to us, not everybody who begins this journey will finish it. Some of us are not going to make it to the end. Isn't that the truth? I mean, there were people that I went to school with that so inspired me by their faith. They were a big part of why I grew in Christ. And today I look around and I realize like half of those people are not walking with Jesus anymore. Is that the case in your life? Do you know people like that? Whose faith really encouraged and inspired you, but, and you think about where they are today, they are as far from the Lord as they could be. And that's the sober truth of the Christian life, is you can have a phenomenal start, but many people will not finish this journey. And the reason they won't finish is because they underestimated the cost of building a life with Christ, or they underestimated the strength of the opposition that would come against them. And they get discouraged when it's not easy, and they decide to walk away. So Jesus, throughout this narrative on discipleship, the, the, these, uh, the sermon he's giving, three times in this short passage uses the phrase, this person, and he describes them, cannot be my disciple. Now, I know that's a little off-putting. It's very uninviting. But it's not really a message intended to repel his hearers, but to invite them. Here's what he's saying. I really want you to follow me but I want you to have clarity on what that means for you. I want you to follow, and I want you to finish the journey. And so I'm going to give it to you this way. If you want to follow me, but this is not what you're signing on for, then you cannot follow me. But if you can accept this invitation the way I give it, then you can follow me, and you will probably make it to the end of the journey. Do you understand that? So even though the words are, the phrasing is, you cannot be my disciple if, it's not really a word of rejection, it's a word of invitation. So I want to give you several invitations that Jesus gives mixed into the sermon and these two parables related to counting the cost of discipleship. Buckle your seatbelts, we're going to go fast through these, but they are meaningful and important, so don't miss any of these. The first invitation that he gives is to love him above all else. To love him above all else. Here's what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother, father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and then the asterisk that lawyers love. And by the way, here's the last one. Everything else, your whole life, you cannot be my disciple. That's a shocking teaching because of the words he uses. He uses a very strong word, hate. He says, what is he saying? That anybody who's a Christian should hate their families, should hate their life, be like, just give me itchy sandpaper clothing and terrible tasting food and say goodbye to everyone I love? Of course that's not what he's saying. 
Our families and our lives are a gift from God, a precious gift to be stewarded and invested well. He's not saying that we should despise and devalue these things, but in Jewish teaching, the word hate was always used as a term of exaggerated comparison. Here's what he means whenever he uses the word hate. He says, whatever it is that I'm talking about, when I call you to hate it, what I'm saying is love this other thing so much more by comparison. If you already love your family and your own life, then you need to understand that the journey of following Jesus is primarily about learning to love him even more than you love all those other things. In other words, if forced to choose between the two, a disciple will choose Jesus before they choose anything or anyone else. Now, I know that that sounds like the right Sunday school answer, but your whole life will be spent processing that. Because Jesus is not asking to be a part of our lives. And that's the way I heard it when I was a youngster and I was coming to Christ. The pastors would preach the gospel and say, would you now come and invite Jesus to be a part of your life? You know what's a part of my life? Eating bean salad. Playing Xbox 360. NFL football. My friends... Those things are a part of my life. I have this life, and they are accoutrements, side dishes in the main course of my life. And I love all those things. Jesus never came into our lives to become a part of our lives. Would you just kind of be over here and be like that Jesus-y part of my life? And whenever I'm feeling a little off, I want to get all that Jesus-y goodness just wash over me, and then that's my Jesus part of my life, and I want to come over here and live my other part of my life and my snowboarding part of my life. And He never, ever invited us to something like that. But if you study and pay attention to what Christianity is becoming in the American church, that's exactly what it's become. Jesus really has become a part of our lives, but in Scripture, every time he invites people, he says, come so that I might become your whole life that I might become the centerpiece, the lodestone, the, the very core of everything you care about, that's going to be me. And the reason he says it is not because he's so totally full of himself, but because he realizes one of the most important things that should happen in life is that we should align love the right way. Who we love defines what our lives turn out to be. Can you agree with me at least on a secular basis that aligning love correctly in your life matters? Let's take a quiz. What matters more as a married person? I know not everyone here is married, but if you are married, what matters more, to love yourself or to love your spouse? Anybody in a funk about this, like in a fog? Oh, that's a tough one. What will make your marriage work better, to love yourself more or to love your spouse more? I think that's a good call, to love your spouse more. In friendship, what makes a friendship grow? When you use your friend to make your life better? When you seek to make your friend's life better? Tell me, which one actually makes for a more lasting, rewarding friendship all around? So you get the idea, everything in life, in the way we experience it, people scratch their heads, I wonder why my friendships all fall apart. I wonder why my marriage is so... You know why? Because love is totally misaligned. 
you're engaged in love, but you don't know how to love rightly. And so you, you add on people that you're supposed to love, but you don't know in what order you're supposed to love these things. And so you love yourself first, and then everyone else a distant second or third, and you wonder why life doesn't feel right. That's because aligning love correctly is one of the most important things you will learn in this life. And God understands that. So when he says, love me above all others, it's not to give himself an ego trip. It's because if you want to follow him, but don't believe that you have to love him above all else, love will be totally misaligned and you won't experience everything you're supposed to experience. You can't have a Christianity where Jesus is relegated to third place or fourth place in the love hierarchy. To be a Christian is to understand that the goal and the trajectory of our lives is to get to a place where Jesus becomes the most important, highest treasured priority for us, the one to whom we are most loyal, that instinctive loyalty. If you ask me, hey, uh, would you give up your life for your wife? I don't have to sit there and think about it. It's already decided in my heart. If it ever came to that, and it was my life or Jeannie's life, I already know what I'm going to say. That matter is finished. No mystery. I will die for Jeannie in a second. Do you see how clear that is for me? And I know in your life you have people you would say the exact same thing to. And the journey of being a Christian is to arrive at a place where Jesus becomes, above all others, the one for whom you would say, if it came to it, in a second he would have the best of me. He would have all of me. I would finish this in order to honor him. So the first invitation is to love Jesus above all other loves. Here's the second invitation. This is going to be a very expensive, heavy message. Obey God at any cost. But I'm I'm going to unpack for you why this is a good thing for us, okay? He says, whoever does not bear his own cross, you don't have to pick up Jesus' cross and save yourself. He did that for you. You can't pick up his cross. It's like when when my kids try to lift the weights that's on the machine, like, how do you do that? And they try it, and they can't do it because I'm a beast. Okay? (laughs) Compare it to them. There's just no way with their scrawny little body they're going to lift what I can lift because, you know, I got it like that. You cannot pick up the cross of Christ. You can't. And you don't need to. He did it already. The, the carrying of a cross is not to participate in the saving of ourselves, to add to our lovability, our savability, our own goodness. Jesus picked that cross up. What he invites us to is to pick up our own crosses. And here's what this means. For Jesus, the cross was the ultimate expression of obedience to God. He didn't feel like doing it in the sense that he was in the mood to be crucified. The last night before the crucifixion, he agonized in prayer asking his father, if there's any other way to do this, can we talk about it? But in the end, he accepted the cross as the ultimate expression that he would obey the father, whatever the cost of that would be. See, in our culture today, obedience has become a dirty word, hasn't it? When's the last time you went to a wedding and the officiant actually said to the woman, do you vow to obey your husband? Uh, Pardon? Come again? What? Obey him? 
He should obey me, you know? And it's, it's the way that our culture understands obedience. We hate any kind of authority. I will yield to you as long as I'm going to get something from it, but you push too hard or this becomes too imbalanced and we're done. That's a phrase people love to use in our culture. I'm so done. I'm so done. We can walk away from everything. Isn't that true? We can walk away from everything because everything to us is disposable. You're in my life as long as I let you be in my life. Don't you ever act like you own me or you're the boss of me. And Jesus goes, "Um, if you're going to follow me, I'm going to totally be the boss of you. We're not going to negotiate. I'm not going to ask you what do you feel like doing. I'm going to tell you this is what I want you to do. And he has that approach because life is not easy or safe or cheap. And he wants to give us life, not take it away. Left to our own devices, what I've watched myself and others do consistently is destroy their own lives in the process of trying to do what's right. If you try to live your life apart from Christ's leading, chances are that you will not have the life you were destined to have. Here's a good, here's a good illustration to take some of the churchies out of that. Do you ever watch those movies where like the pilot and the co-pilot and all the other guys in the cockpit keel over and die? And suddenly like, is there anybody? Uh, I used to play a flight simulator when I was in high school. Can I? And they said, can you go to the cockpit right away? And what happens? You strap on the headset and someone at the airport tries to talk you down into a safe landing. If you've seen movies like that, right? What's the most important thing for this amateur would-be pilot to do? Pardon? Listen, obey, yeah. When the guy in the headset goes, now listen, I want you to flip the green switch. Do you have it? It says EXR. Flip it up. Uh, But the red switch is so cute. (laughs) I don't care what it looks like. Flip the green one now. And then he says, now when you get real close to the ground, what I want you to do is pull up on the stick just a little. Yeah, but I want to go to the ground, not up. I want to push the stick down. Shut up! I know what you think, but you're not a pilot. I know this seems right to you, but right now the only thing that matters is do exactly as I said, and you will land this plane and walk away. You diverge from my instruction. I cannot make any promises about what the outcome of this day will be. I can make some good predictions. You're going to die. The most important thing that could happen in that scenario is everything that is said must be followed exactly. Because someone who cares about you, who knows better than you, is trying to guide you into something, and you would do well to listen. Now, before you think that's some irrelevant sci-fi Hollywood scenario, let me tell you, I have talked with so many people where I feel like that's my role in their life. And it's not me as a life coach. It's me as someone looking at Scripture and trying to marry their situation to the Word of God somehow. Listen, I know I don't know everything about your life or your career or your industry or your marriage, but I know the Word of God. And after what you shared with me, this is what I believe God wants for you. Will you please listen to what God is saying? And it's a wrestling match with some people. Every time I go pull the stick up, they go, but I want to pull it down. All right. 
If it's really going to be like that, where you cannot obey God even when so much is on the line, then really you cannot be his disciple. Because what you're saying is in the end, the only person I'm responsible for is me. The only person I'll really listen to is me. And, you know, can you just pause for a moment and consider whether that's the way your heart is right now? Think about the last contentious conversation you had with a fellow Christian. Someone who's trying to convince you of something, the rightness or the wrongness of something in your life. How did you respond to that correction, that guidance, that appeal to the word of God? Because the way a lot of people respond to it when I try is they say, you know what, that's just your opinion. I don't want to do that. I don't have to do everything you guys say in church. And a lot of people, what they choose at that moment to do is they plug their ears or they walk away. I'm so done. Because they don't want to yield to anyone, not even to God. And what Jesus says is, if you want the life I'm trying to give you, you can't get it by defying every word of guidance I try to give you. Because the way you're going to get that life is to live the way I instruct you to live. So if you're going to be his disciple, a big component of that is doing what his word tells us. And it really is that clear and that simple. Let me give you a third invitation Jesus gives. Come to me with your hands completely empty. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Here's another crazy scenario that's never going to happen, but it makes for a good illustration. Imagine that we're running a contest, and I had this big glass telephone booth right here, and it was filled with Google stock certificates. At close of market Friday, or whenever the last day of trading was, it closed at about $1,060 per share. What if I said to you, this contest is like this. Take as long as you need, grab your backpack, and as many of these stock certificates as you can fit into that backpack, they're yours to keep. What's the first thing I'm going to do? I'm going to empty my backpack. I'm not an idiot. I got some, my precious iPad is in there, my checkbook, my laptop. But none of those things can possibly compete in value for what I'm about to stuff into there. So whatever it is that's taken up space cannot compete with what I want to put in there instead. And that really is the invitation of the Christian life. Christianity has been called the great exchange for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's the great exchange because Jesus exchanges our guilt for his righteousness. That's a wonderful, imbalanced, mismatched trade. We get everything, and it costs us nothing. It's a wonderful exchange. But it's also called the great exchange for another reason, because he wants to take our old, raggedy, futile lives and exchange them for a new life in a new kingdom in a whole new outcome. He wants to take the lives we used to live that weren't working and trade them in even for a new life here on earth. Christianity is not just about getting out of hell and going to heaven after you die. Christianity's great invitation is to experience a new life here and now. But the only way to lay hold of that new life is to empty your pockets of the old stuff that's filling it. 
For some, that may be literally letting go of things, but really I think this is ultimately about the heart. It's about agreeing that when I come to Jesus, what I want more than anything is what he's offering. I'm not married to the stuff I had in my pockets when I came here because whatever he's offering is going to be worth more than whatever is already filling my hands. So that as I come to Jesus over and over and over again over the course of my life, he's going to invite me, hey, can I have that junk in your hands? I want to give you something better. I want to give you something more. And you're going to go through that countless times over the course of your Christian life where you'll realize you're holding so tightly onto something you think is precious. I can't live without this. This is everything to me. He says, no, no, just let go. What I want to give you is way better. But he will not just shove it into your hands. He wants you to trade him for what you have. Only empty hands can be filled. Is there something in your life you can't let go of? Chances are that's the very thing standing in the way of the full life which Jesus is calling you into. See, I think there are a lot of people who are growing bored of Christianity. And part of the reason they're getting bored is because the Christianity they're trying to pursue is really boring. It costs nothing. There's no danger. There's nothing radical. It's just this sort of, hey, you want to go to church on Sunday and stop swearing and limit yourself to PG-13 movies? No more alcohol and no more dirty dancing. And You know, the way we're making Christianity, it's so completely pathetic. I get bored of that. I mean... What's to keep anybody interested in something like that over the course of a lifetime? But when you actually listen to the words of Jesus, the Christianity he describes is very radical. It would revolutionize your whole life. And if he hasn't already done that, if Jesus hasn't come into your life and completely flipped around the way your love is aligned, the way that you obey and understand authority, the way that you value things, your own personal economics, if Knowing Jesus hasn't radically transformed those areas of your life. I can pretty much guarantee you that the Christianity you're pursuing is one that cannot hold your interest for very long. You will outgrow it. You will grow weary of it. It will be so lame when it's gone from your life, you won't even notice most of the time. And I think that's happening in family after family, home after home, all across this country is that we've created a Christianity not worth living, and then we stop living it. So here's the invitation. The kind of Christianity Jesus invites us to is one where he is the highest loyalty in our lives. Where, by his example, we obey God at any cost. And where what we value is completely flipped around so that we would always rather have what he's offering than whatever is already clutched in our hands. Easier said than done, right? I mean, that's that's not a radically new message, but I hope that I've done justice by the word of God and presented it to you clearly and boldly. But if you are awake, If you're not, could you just look over and see if your neighbor is drowsy? Just kind of give him a nudge. If you've been sleeping, this is the part to pay attention to. Okay? I'm going to give you 
A couple quick responses. What can you do about this? Because when you hear a message like this, you're just sort of like, oh. But I love all these other people a little more than I honestly love God. I find it, frankly, a little difficult to invite God to be the unquestioned authority over my life. And there's a lot of stuff in my hands I really like. I'm not sure I'm ready to let go of any of it. So you've got this invitation. It's clear, but it's costly. And Jesus says, count the cost. You say, I've counted it. I'm not sure I can afford this. Here's the response, the right response, if you want to accept this invitation. Number one, pray for help. We think of prayer as such a passive and lame response to everything. We sort of pray after everything else that can be done has been done. Right? I mean, your, your friend says, I'm sick. You go, is there anything I can do? I will buy you food. I will give you, I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off trying to do something for you. And then after I've done all that, I'll pray. I'll pray. Prayer seems like the least we can often do. But I believe that it's the most powerful thing we can do. See, because here's the thing. We feel a huge tension when we finally understand the gospel. There's a huge tension because it's really heavy. And here's the thing. I can't redefine the gospel to make it less heavy, so obviously the change has to happen in me. I can't lower the cost, so I've got to raise what I have, and I can't do that by myself. So if I'm going to have any hope of accepting this invitation, I'm going to need help. I cannot follow Christ on my own power. And if I need God's help, what's the best way to get it? James tells us so clearly, you receive not because you ask not. So here's my recommendation to you. Pray three things. If you really want, and some of you feel this in your heart, you know what I'm talking about. Lately, God has been kind of bugging you. For some, it was through that that, um, not a fan video series we did in small groups. That messed with a lot of people. Would you just raise your hand if that, that video thing jacked you up a little bit? Because it, it, it jacked me up a little. Okay. You don't have to raise your hand physically, but at least raise it in your heart. You know what I'm talking about. God is after you. He's doing something, but there's a lot of tension rising in your heart. You know that what you're calling Christianity is not enough. There's something calling you into more, but you're not sure you can go there. Here's what I would pray. Just pray simply, God Bring me to a place where I can love you above all other loves. Make me able to obey you whatever it will cost me. Help me to let go of the things in my hands and prefer what you're offering me instead. Simple. But I bet you very few of us actually ask consistently that God would do this work in us. And yet we remain resistant to the true gospel. When you're feeling that tension, the first response should be pray and ask God for help. And here's the second thing I think we can do to respond to this message is find a clear and approachable next step and take it. Do something concrete that that realigns the priority scale of love in your life. Most of the time, when we're just on default mode, we take care of ourselves and our families first, and then friends and and people we like second, ourselves, our physical well-being maybe third, and then often God is like fourth or fifth, if we're really truly honest about it. 
A lot of people put their companies and their work and their careers above everything else. Do something concrete to mess with the way that love and priority and loyalty are aligned in your life. If you find consistently that this is the way you prioritize things, make one concrete choice that flips that around. Flips it around. I don't know what that's going to be for you, but I think if you listen, God will tell you what that decision is. Another concrete step you can take is this. Do something simply because God's word demands it of you, not because you feel like doing it. How do I know where authority begins? It begins where I can be made to do something I don't want to do. It's such a clear principle, right? Do you ever have to tell kids, eat ice cream? I command you with my authority, eat ice cream. Good. I am powerful. I can make you do whatever I want. You know you have authority in your kids when you, when you say, turn off the TV and read. Yes, Dad. That's authority. Because ain't no kid ever born who wants to turn off the TV and read. Clean up your room. Yes, Dad. That's authority. That's authority because you wouldn't do it unless you were being told by someone whose authority you recognize. So is there something in your life you sense God wants you to do, but everything you doesn't feel like doing it, and make a concrete choice, even something small. Wake up tomorrow 15 minutes earlier. (gasps) But I already wake up so early. I know I don't feel like it. Even start with something that trivial, that small, 15 minutes earlier, and start your day quietly sitting with God. It can be something that simple, but it's something you're doing because you sense God wants this, not because you want it for yourself. And finally, make a concrete step that converts something you treasure in the world into something you will treasure for eternity. I don't know what that means, but think about something you really treasure and think, how can I make a a concrete decision to loosen my grip a little on this thing? I didn't tell Jeannie this yet, but I had a little, I made a little ding in my car the other day. Um, Jordan was in the car with me. I was backing into, I back into my garage because I'm cool. And uh, I like to just zoom right out. So I back in, but sometimes when I'm distracted, it's a little tricky backing into this really narrow garage door. And I had a mishap and I scraped the front of my car. It's not a deal break. The car still works just fine. It looks okay. But I know it's there. And it's totally bugging me because I know it's just the 2004 Honda Accord, but I love my car so much. I have like this emotional attachment to my car. My car sucks compared to most of your cars, but I love my car. And I've been really fighting this desire to get it fixed. (laughs) Because I know what it's going to cost, and there are a lot of other things I'd rather use that money for. So it's a small thing. It's a stupid thing. But it's just one of those little decisions I'm making right now to make sure that I'm taking my next steps, ensuring that there are things I value much more and I'm choosing those things preferentially. That's just a stupid little story from my life. I bet you, though, in your own life, there are things like that. Little concrete decisions you can make to convert worldly treasure into heavenly treasure. Would you listen to the Lord? And if he's telling you to do something, Take one concrete next step this week in that direction. So this is the way we always respond to God. Ask for help and then do something 
right away. Ask for help and then do something right away. Amen? Let's, let's bow in prayer together. <clears throat> I truly believe this with my whole heart. That Christianity doesn't become interesting until it becomes as radical and as expensive as Jesus described. Anything less is really kind of boring. It's no mystery that when you're hitting tennis balls against a wall, it's never as exciting as when you're playing tennis match against another person. Because suddenly something is on the line. There are stakes involved. It's real. I think for most of us, there are a lot of stretches in our lives where Christianity just feels like hitting a ball against the wall. You're like, why are we doing this? It doesn't count for anything. It doesn't matter. I can stop right now and nothing would change. And if that's where your heart is, hear the invitation of Christ. Stop playing games with what God died to make your real life. Stop flirting with something that can only be understood by a total immersion, complete commitment. I want to invite you to make Christianity as dangerous as it really is for you, for it to get your pulse quickened, for it to cost you something, because then I think your soul will wake up. So let's just pause there for a minute and invite God to work that out in us. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.